you're in Mark chapter 9, say amen together. Amen. I'm going to warn you, this was the most complex text of Scripture that I have studied in the 18 sermons I've written out of the Gospel of Mark so far this year. It was very hard to put together as a sermon that I thought would have been interesting enough to listen to. Um, it, it, was, it was hard to put together uh, just really what Mark is getting at here because it's, it's this event called the transfiguration of Jesus. And this event seems so out of this world that it's hard to put back down into this world for a moment of time to where we can apply it to our lives. I think God's helped me to do that, but you're going to have to make a deal with me. I've worked hard for the last 14 days on this sucker, trying to figure it out. I need you to work really hard with me for the next four hours. <laughs> I mean, like, not that long. I'm not going to tell you how long, because then you'll be watching your watch. Um, it, I, it, won't, it won't be super long. That's not the point, but I need you to do your part today. I need you to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I need you to want to study God's word because that's what it's going to take. I'm telling you, we're going to get into it and, and it's a little different and so it's, it's very teachy in some places, but we're going somewhere. And if you'll hang with me to the very end, I think it's going to be like a puzzle. We're going to put together a piece at a time and then we're going to see the big picture. If you'll hang with me, if you'll commit to that, say amen together. Amen. Let me catch up where we were last week. We studied in chapter eight, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And the spokesman of the disciples, who is Peter, he, he spoke up and said, you're the Christ. Meaning, Jesus, you're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Sounded like a great answer, but, but they misunderstood what Messiah meant. Messiah to them meant something different than what Jesus had in mind. They thought that Jesus as the Messiah was coming to establish an earthly kingdom um, as an earthly king. And that, what that meant for them as his disciples were they, they were going to ride his coattails to glory and honor and prominence and power over the oppressive Roman government. That's why Jesus came as the Messiah. But in response, Jesus clarified to them what it really meant for him to be the Messiah. It didn't mean earthly glory. It meant earthly suffering. Jesus would be rejected and killed. To make matters worse, Jesus told his disciples right after that, that if they were going to follow him, they needed to be willing to endure the same suffering, which would require denying themselves every day and taking up his cross. Now, can you put yourself in the disciples' sandals for a second? You have your assumption of what the Messiah meant, and Jesus just blew that up. Have you ever had your expectations disappointed? Your assumptions blown up. The Bible says uh, a heart deferred or hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, when you have your hopes up and those aren't met, it's like, oh man, it's heartbreaking. The disciples were feeling this in the moment. This was bleak. This was unappetizing to them. Who wants a cross? Who wants to die? Who, who wants to commit to a life of following Jesus? If, if, if it's possible that that means a life of suffering. Jesus knew the disciples would be wrestling with them after he blew up their assumptions. And that's why immediately after chapter 8, we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, it's the same conversation. And he gives them a very positive prediction. He wants to kind of take them out of the, uh, of the, the, the down and outers kind of feel the, they're in the blues. And he wants to bring them back up with encouragement. Look in verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God with power. Okay, so Jesus has his 12 disciples, right? They're standing right in front of him. And he looks at them and says, There's some of you among this group 
and you're going to see the Messiah in all his glory and you're going to see the Messiah in all his power and you won't even have to die and go to heaven to see it. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about what we're going to preach about today. The transfiguration. He predicts something in verse 1 that six days later happened. Look at verse 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment, that's his, his clothes, became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller or launderer on earth can white them. I want you to get the scene in your mind. Jesus had a circle of 12 disciples that he mentored. In that larger circle of 12, there was a smaller circle of three, Peter, James, and John, that he mentored in a more intimate way. They got some experiences that the other uh, nine did not experience. That's probably because of the key leadership roles that they would play in the early church. Jesus wanted extra time with them. And so Jesus took these three men up to the top of a mountain. Most scholars say it was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was 9,200 feet in elevation. That would assured the disciples and Jesus the solitude they needed once they got to the top of the mountain. It was just them and Jesus. Luke's gospel of this account tells us that when they got to the top of Mount Hermon, the disciples fell asleep. You can't blame them. It was a long hike. Now, they were good at falling asleep. But they, they, they weren't really taking into consideration what Jesus just predicted a week ago. They forgot about it already. They got to the top of the mountain, they fell asleep. And the Bible says that while they were asleep, Jesus transfigured himself. What, what does transfigured mean? Well, it comes from the verb metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. That word appears four times in the New Testament scripture. Each time it speaks of a radical transformation. That's what happens to Jesus here. He radically transforms himself, not in nature. But in appearance, see, up to this point, Jesus had veiled his glory, covered his glory to an extent. But now he's going to reveal it temporarily to these three disciples through his transfiguration. And he started with his garments. Mark described his garments as changing in color. They, they, they began to shine. They were bright white. Luke and Matthew's gospel say that Jesus' face transformed. It shone like the sun. And, and no doubt this bright light would have, would have uh, woke up his three disciples. Could you imagine waking up to the sight of the Son of God in his glorious state? Even though Jesus told them this would happen, I guarantee you they already forgot about it and they're shocked. My question is this, church, what is Jesus doing? Why take the time to, to hike 9,200 feet up in elevation to transfigure himself in, in, in front of these three men? What's the point? Well, he's giving his disciples a snapshot of the future glory of God's kingdom. It's a precursor to what is sure to happen in the future for both Jesus and his disciples. They will be glorified. Jesus wanted them to know through the transfiguration, watch this, that death wasn't the end. He wanted them to know that though he had to die, he just predicted that last chapter. We preached about it last week. Though he had to die, though he had to suffer, and they would too, death would not have the final word. To make this point even further, we're building here. He ushers two Old Testament figures into the scene. As though they appear out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah in their glorified state. Look at verse four. And there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with 
Jesus. Moses had been gone by this point in history for over 1,400 years. Elijah had been gone in this point of history for over 900 years. Why bring these two men back in glorious form? I mean, what's the significance here? Well, a couple of things. You can, you can imply all kinds of things, but, but I'll boil it down to a couple. Moses and Elijah are the only two to have ever seen a theophany on a mountain. What is that? A visible manifestation of God. Moses saw it on Mount Sinai. Elijah saw it on Mount Horeb. More significantly, though, the context here is the fact that both of these men, watch here, were faithful servants of God that suffered because of their obedience to God. This is something that they would have in common with Jesus who just predicted that he would suffer because he obeyed his father. It's something they would have in common with these three disciples who Jesus said would suffer if they followed him. In fact, it's what they were talking to Jesus about. Did you notice at the end of verse 4 that these, three got, these two guys were talking with Jesus? Did you notice that? Are you still with me? Remember, I said you're going to have to work today. In Luke's gospel, he tells us what they were talking about. Luke's gospel says they were talking about Jesus' death. They were talking about Jesus' suffering. So, so here are the three disciples. Watch here. They wake up to see Jesus transfigured in all his glory as though he's in heaven. They see Moses and Elijah. I don't know what's going on over there. Maybe we're being transfigured right now. I like the sound effects though. Two Old Testament heroes in their glorious bodies. And, and they hear them talking about suffering and death. So the message is clear. Jesus would suffer. Moses would suffer. Elijah would suffer. But suffering would not be their end. The glorious bodies of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah reveal the fact that glory is coming. Did I give you the title of my sermon? It's called Glory is Coming. <laughs> Death may be certain, but it doesn't have the final word. See, to these disciples, this was meant to be a shot in the arm. They were just told to deny themselves and take up their cross. They were just told in chapter 8 by Jesus that suffering was certain for them if they were going to really be his disciples. But through his transfiguration and that of Elijah and Moses, he's showing them that they will be vindicated in glory. Suffering won't be their end. It will be a means to their end. While suffering has been foretold, glory is sure to come. But the transfiguration doesn't stop there. Because at that moment you would expect all of the disciples to be in such shock and awe that they couldn't even think of what to say next. But guess who had something to say? Peter. Shocker. Look at verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Now, it's like a Captain Obvious statement, right? Like, yeah, it is. That's, I mean, it is good for you to be here. But he, there's more to it than that. He said, let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. For he was not, he knew not what to say. Why? He was sore afraid. So never at a loss for words, here's Peter, interrupts a conversation between three transfigured people. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and he suggests that they make three tabernacles right there on top of Mount Hermon. He wanted the three of them 
to stay there permanently in their glorious state. You know why? He wanted to establish the kingdom of God right on the spot. Peter wanted them to get this thing done that he thought Jesus was coming for in the first place. You're the Messiah coming to be an earthly king and reign in an earthly kingdom. And we're going to follow you. We're going to, we're going to overthrow this, this oppressive Roman government. And this, it's happening right for our eyes. Stay right here. Why don't you get you some tabernacles? Now, the timing of, of, of Peter's suggestions here, I think, give us an indication of, of maybe why he, he, he thought that the time was now. Study with me. The transfiguration took place in the month of Tishri, which, which was six months before the Passover. So at that time, the Feast of Tabernacles, which, you know, commemorated the exodus from Egypt, was being celebrated. So what better time, Peter thought, for the Messiah to lead his people out of bondage to sin and into his righteous earthly kingdom than during the Feast of the Tabernacles? Timing on the calendar just made sense. Combine that with Peter waking up to see the transfigured Jesus and two Old Testament heroes in their glorious form. And he no doubt was thinking, hey, Elijah is associated with the coming of the kingdom, according to Malachi's prophecy, Malachi 4. Moses is the great deliverer who can certainly lead the people of God because he led them out of Egyptian bondage. It makes sense. He's coming to lead us into God's kingdom. Elijah's here to preach repentance and the, 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 the kingdom is going to be established. And verse 6 says that Peter didn't even know what to say. He was so scared. He didn't want the kingdom of God to slip away. He wanted it right now while it was at his fingertips. So he anxiously blurted out, hey, stay here. Stay here. Don't leave. Don't leave. He basically said, Moses, Elijah, I don't want this to be over. Like, I really like this whole glory idea. Like, this is what I had envisioned all along when I thought of Jesus being the Messiah. This is what I meant when Jesus asked me who I said, he, who I thought he was, and I said, you're the Messiah. This is what I meant. Build just some tabernacles and stay a while, guys. Peter's desire, watch this, was that the suffering of the cross that Jesus spoke about in chapter 8 be avoided. And so to him, this glorious moment on the mountain was his chance to escape the present suffering Jesus had just predicted. See, Peter wasn't understanding that Jesus' purpose in, in taking him and James and John all the way up Mount Hermon was just to give them a preview of what future glory would look like. It was only meant to be a taste a temporary glimpse into their eternal state in order to encourage them to persevere through the suffering that would come with following Jesus. But Peter's like, it doesn't need to be temporary. It needs to be permanent. I don't want the cross. I want glory. And Abraham Curavilla, a scholar on the book of Mark, put it this way. An incomplete confession of Peter that attempted to bypass the cross, chapter 8, is now followed by an incomplete proposal from Peter that attempts to bypass suffering and take a shortcut to glory. In other words, Peter got it wrong. See, at this point, God the Father interjects. You would think that as Jesus did, God the Son, Jesus rebuked Peter in chapter 8 for getting it wrong. But Jesus doesn't say a word. For some reason, God the Father thinks he needs to say something. And when he says something, you better take notice. Verse 7 says he hovers over the scene in a cloud. Look what he says in verse 7. And there was a cloud. By the way, if anybody says the Bible is boring, you ain't reading it right. 
If there was a cloud that overshadowed, there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. What's this all about? The father's command that they listen to the son was a direct rebuke of Peter. He commanded Peter and the others to be silent and listen to what Jesus had to say. Say about what? Because if you notice, Jesus hasn't talked one time since they've been on the mountain. So if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, great, I'm listening, but he's not talking. Well, I think God the Father's pointing them back to Jesus' words in the latter part of chapter 8, which he preached last week. He's pointing them back to what Jesus told them about his mission and that of his followers to deny themselves and take up his cross. We call that the demands of discipleship. God is saying the way of suffering discipleship that my son told you is about is what you must hear right now and you must accept right now. And as his father in heaven, I want you to know, disciples, I authenticate what he said is true and you must listen to him. Disciples, glory will come. And Peter, I know you want it right now, but it's not going to come until later. What you saw on this mountain will happen in the future. But for the present, I'm calling upon you to listen to my son. To listen to what he's told you about your present suffering, about your mission to deny yourself and take up his cross. Here's the point. They would need to come down the glorious mountain experience with Jesus and walk the path of suffering with him first. Now at this point, the transfiguration is over. It's like the screen rolls to the credits and we're just about to the end. Because verse 8 says, suddenly... They saw no man with them other than Jesus. You getting this? No cloud. No Old Testament prophets. No transfigured Jesus. Have you ever had a movie have a bad ending? Like just sudden? It's kind of what it feels like if you're in the story with me. They're suddenly back to normal. Just like they were before they went up to the top of the mountain. And so naturally they hike back down. And on their hike down the mountain, they get into another theological conversation. I'm not going to get caught in the weeds of the theological conversation. I'm going to show you how it contributes to the thought that I'm trying to preach today. But look at verse 9 through 13. This is the end of the story. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Verse 13. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. We can look at other gospels. He's actually referring to John the Baptist. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. Without losing you, let me tell you what's going on. And then we're going to hasten to some application, which I think will really help you. As Peter and James and John were coming down the mountain, I'm imagining in my mind they have the spirit of like some elementary school boys who just experienced something really, really cool. And they're talking back and forth, rehearsing to each other. What are we going to tell Thomas? How are we going to tell Bartholomew? I can't wait to tell Nathaniel and Andrew what we just saw, and Jesus interrupts him and says, I don't want you to say anything. You don't say anything until I am risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. It piqued their interest because in their doctrine, they had room for the resurrection, but not now. It's going to happen at the end of the age. Yet Jesus says, risen from the dead? Oh, it gets Peter excited again. 
Maybe he's talking about now. I mean, Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. Jesus talking about resurrection from the dead. Hey, this is a compelling argument in my mind that the, that the age is near. I don't have to suffer. I get glory. But where's Elijah? They knew Malachi chapter 4 says that Elijah has to come first. Before the day of the Lord, before the day of judgment, before God comes to earth and rules and reigns, Elijah's going to come, Malachi says, and he's going to preach repentance and he's going to prepare the way for God to establish his kingdom on earth. But Elijah disappeared. This isn't making sense to us. And he, they asked Jesus. And so Jesus tells him, no, 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 you're right. Elijah will come and he will set up kind of the earth in some ways for, for, for the day of the Lord. He'll prepare the way for the kingdom of God. But disciples, your theology's right, but your timing's off. It's going to happen, disciples. But don't forget, the same Old Testament prophesies not just of the day of the Lord where I get victory and I get glory, but the same Old Testament prophesies of the fact that I've got to suffer. Do you know that, right? Do you know the Old Testament? It doesn't just talk about the day of the Lord when he'll rule and reign on earth. It talks about what has to happen before that. The messianic prophecies that say he will have to go to Calvary first. He will have to die first. And here are the disciples again. They're wanting to skip suffering to get to glory. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Suffering is the path to glory. Glory will come, but suffering is first. That is a complex story. A complex passage that, honestly, we could kind of rip in about three or four different parts and preach it in a month. I believe Mark wants us to take it as a whole because he wants us to see a bigger picture. What are we in 2021 as Christ's disciples supposed to take from the transfiguration? What are we supposed to get from it? Two statements. Number one, present suffering is certain. I didn't expect to get any amens after that point. You can't be a true follower of God and escape this reality. If you accept the demands of discipleship, which is chapter 8 and verse 34, deny yourself and take up his cross. If you want to know what those two things mean, go listen to last week's sermon. If you really do that, here's what you're doing. You're inviting suffering into your life. You're saying, I volunteer to die. Not physically, but die to yourself. I volunteer to miss out on some things. I volunteer to raise my kids in a certain way that might provoke the opposition of other family members. I volunteer for present suffering because my values, my priorities, my attitudes, my words, if I'm a real follower of Christ and I follow his word, they will slowly become more like Christ and less like the world and the world doesn't like when I'm not like them. For the teenager, the college student, the adult single in here today who's really serious about following Christ, when you turn down an invitation to go to a party because you know what will be there and who will be there, you can expect to be slandered. You can expect to be left out in the future. You can expect to be mocked or at least expect to lose some popularity or social status. For those who are serious about living out their faith at work, what do I mean? You don't compartmentalize your faith. You don't have a church box and a home box and a work box and a hobby box and live a different way in each box. For those who take their faith with them to work and out in the community, there will be times when you're tempted to sacrifice your integrity for your career success. But if you take following Christ seriously, you won't do that. 
You won't lie to make a sale. You won't fudge truth to get a promotion. You won't smear somebody else to get ahead. And as a consequence, your career may have a lower ceiling and even a, a smaller paycheck than you first expected. You may miss out on earthly success because you take following Christ at work seriously and your boss doesn't. You value integrity and your company doesn't. I can't help but think of people in our own church who are saved. Serious about following Christ, but they have family members that aren't. Family members that aren't saved, don't care to be saved. Our family members that are saved, they know Christ personally in a relationship. They know they're going to heaven when they die, but they just don't really so much concern for being committed to that life or committed to giving Christ their all. The idea of denying themselves and taking up their cross is really, really too gory to even consider being part of their life. That means there will be times that you might face opposition from the people you love the most. They don't understand a decision you're making for your kids. They get irritated when you're not always available on Sundays. You're misunderstood because of, of, of the changes you're making in your life. And I'm telling you, that won't feel very good. Well, Pastor Tyler, we're talking about the transfiguration. Why aren't you talking about glory? Because you don't get to glory without first going through suffering. It's a hard truth, but it's certain. So then my question is this. If present suffering can't be avoided, if you're really following Christ, which by the way, if you never feel any strain or sacrifice, I don't know if you're really, really taking up his cross. But if present suffering can't be avoided, how do we get through it? Because after a while, it gets really hard and gets really old. How do we resist the temptation to compromise our values or biblical values in order to avoid pain in my family or being left out socially or dodge being misunderstood by those at work? How do we bear present suffering that often comes with truly following Jesus? Let me tell you how. You keep your eyes focused on future glory. Give me this, this is the greatest point of the transfiguration. Yes, present suffering is certain, but get this, future glory is coming. Hey, this is what the transfiguration is all about. The disciples, like the historic Moses and Elijah, ascend up the mountain at a time of discouragement in their lives, and they all receive a preview of what glory will be like. Why? In order to keep them persevering in discipleship that, that really involves nothing but suffering sometimes. For these men, they would have to suffer, but now, after the transfiguration, they had something to anticipate. And so do you. I said, so do you. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, present suffering, hey, it isn't the end of your story. Yes, a life of denying yourself and, and taking up his cross, it'll be painfully difficult at times. But the good news is that you have promised a future glory in heaven to anticipate in the most difficult of times on earth. The transfiguration proves that. If Jesus suffered but was glorified, if Moses suffered but was glorified, if Elijah suffered but was glorified, if the disciples suffered but were glorified, you will suffer and be glorified as well. Well, I don't know if I can buy into that. Well, then look what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How many know you're a child of God today? Say amen. amen. And if children, oh, it, it gets better, then heirs. 
I'm glad to be not just a child of my dad, but, but an heir of my dad. He ain't going to leave me no money, so that's kind of heartbreaking, but I'm hoping to get the house at least. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Because you're joint heirs with Christ, you are a son of God. You will be glorified with Christ. Okay, let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf. That means you will enjoy a glorified body. My wife sees one every day. I said, Jenny, you don't need to hear the transfiguration sermon. You see a transfigured... Far from it. I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. The Spirit of God told me no and I disobeyed. Could you imagine a glorified body? Could you imagine it? No more pain. No more jeans, no more neck braces. Saw somebody walking in a walker today, Miss Grace. No more walkers. Hallelujah, she said. To Miss Margaret, to Miss Carla, to Miss Amy in our church, no more cancer. Mm. No more COVID-19. Don't even have to wear a mask. Mm. No more diabetes. No more insulin injections. Can you imagine this? No chronic back pain. Ruth, it's good to see you. No MS. Living no MS. For my wife, no Crohn's disease. For Brother David, no Crohn's disease. You don't have to wait to endure those treatments. Can you imagine that? Going to bed and waking up feeling good every day. You get that? I know for you young ones, that's, that's life for you. But for real people like us, like our joints hurt. And we wake up mad sometimes. Right? Can you imagine a glorified body? How about this? A glorified body in a glorified place. Can you imagine that? A glorified place. The new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth. That, that Jesus said in John 14, I'm going away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. That's not an imaginative place. That's a real place. Because he gives tangible details in the book of Revelation to how glorious that place is going to be. Streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl. Can you believe that? The new river, the tree of life, or the river of life, the the tree of life, the, uh, the, 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 the size and dimensions of heaven are so large that people from every tongue and tribe and generation ever to live in the world who have believed in Jesus can assemble together and never feel crowded. Never feel crowded. The glorious throne room of God that can't be tainted by your sin or my sin. No one will be distracted. The glory will shine like Jesus shone right here. Glorified body, a glorified place. How about this? With glorified people. Guess what? There ain't going to be anybody that gets on your nerves. Get that person out of your mind right now. We're talking about heaven. I will not have to go to church and wrestle with what I know about that person. 
what I know about that person. Or this family member that continually betrays me. Or this kid that disappoints me. Or this parent that abused me. No, glorified people. People that don't struggle with fear anymore. People that don't struggle with worry anymore. People that don't struggle with mental illness anymore. People that are, that, that, that are glorious in their body. And, and everybody's in the same glorious place. I, I'm talking about, about people like my brother. Who right now is glorified. People like. Oh man, I can't start to mention everybody in this church because then you'll get mad at me when I don't mention your grandma. <laughs> so I won't go there, but will you put that person in your mind's eye right now? The person that you missed, but you know they called upon Christ. The person that was tragically taken from you by, in a car accident. The person that thought life wasn't worth living and committed suicide. The person that died that, that long, slow death of cancer. Those people will be there. And when you see them, they will be all put together. They will be fully healthy. They will have, 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 have everything in their glorified body where it's supposed to be, doing what it's supposed to be doing. No pain, no suffering, no disease, no crying, no hospitals, no virus, no anything bad. And maybe what excites me the most is not just a glorified place and a glorified people, glorified body. But you know what else excites me? I'll have no, there'll be no existence of a less than glorious flesh. Meaning I will never feel pulled again to do something wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of having to bite my tongue. Or my thumbs. Like I'm always tempted to say something I shouldn't say at a time in which I shouldn't say it with a tone that I shouldn't say it. I'm so frustrated sometimes that my flesh wants me to be vindictive. I won't feel that in heaven because you won't get on my nerves. Everything I type on Facebook, I'll never have to hit delete because you won't act stupid. Can you imagine that? Can you literally imagine when you don't have to wrestle with sin any longer? The habit, the addiction, you're still working to break. You won't even feel its pull on you. The person you're still struggling to forgive, their uh, thought of their wrongdoing won't even be in your mind. You'll worship God with them without even thinking through a filter. And maybe the best part about it is that it lasts forever. It's eternal. Yes, the transfiguration was temporary, but heaven is eternal. One more verse in Romans 8. Look at this. For I reckon, if heaven's this good, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be carried with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No matter how bleak or dire your situation gets in your journey of following Christ on earth. Hear me, please. You might think it's the end of the world for you. It doesn't even compare to the glory of heaven.
So this is coming full picture for me. What the transfiguration really means. It means that if we want to make the present suffering bearable, we've got to keep our eyes on future glory. And I, I boil it down to this statement. Hang on the future to get through the present. <laughs> That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to do. Disciples, I know you're going to have to pick up a cross. See, Peter didn't even know it, but Peter was going to be crucified upside down. These men that, that heard his words to deny yourself and be willing to die for me, they didn't know that die literally meant die. Burn at the stake, crucified, stoned, drowned. All kinds of death sentences were upon their life. And Jesus said, that's not the end of your story. When you feel like you can't go another step forward in your discipleship journey, I want you to pick your eyes up to heaven and remember suffering is not the end. When you take a hit for following the Lord, the sacrifice you made for him doesn't seem to be reaping benefits in the moment. You hang on the future and you tell yourself this out loud. Glory is coming. Next time your integrity puts you behind at work instead of puts you ahead, hang on the future and tell yourself glory is coming. Next time your family misunderstands you and maligns you for your commitment to the Lord and his church, you hang on the future and tell yourself glory is coming. When denying yourself and taking up his cross really hurts and you're just getting tired of doing the right thing, don't get discouraged. Don't lose hope. Don't quit following the Lord. Get your eyes off your present suffering and focused on your future glory. Katie Ledecky is a 24-year-old elite Olympic swimmer. You might have been watching her this past week. She's known as the best female swimmer in the world. She holds numerous world records, most decorated female swimmer in history. But it hasn't come easy, especially when you study her workout routine, which is followed six days a week, or six days, yes, yeah, six days a week before the Olympics. And she's done, she, she's kept this schedule, this, this regiment, since before she was old enough to have a driver's license. Six days a week, she's 24 years old, she's been doing it six days a week since before she was old enough to have her driver's license. Look at this schedule. Wakes up at 4.05 a.m. I didn't even know there were two of those. <laughs> at 4.15, she eats two pieces of toast with peanut butter plus a banana or an apple. At 5 a.m. is her first workout. She swims 6,000 to 6,500 yards. At 7, she eats a bagel, omelet, coffee, and, of course, chocolate milk. At 11 a.m., she does dryland training. At 12.30, she eats pasta or salad for lunch. At 3.30, she swims another 7 to 8,000 yards. At 6.30, she eats dinner, pasta, usually with beans or meat. And at 9.15, she goes to bed. What teenager goes to bed at 9.15? Now, what teenager wakes up at 4 in the morning? That's not a schedule I look forward to keeping. It, it makes me ask, how does she persevere that schedule for so long? How did she manage to go to bed earlier than all her teenage friends, missing out on a lot of normal teenage activities for that long? She hasn't even eaten ice cream, candy, or drank soda pop for over 10 years. How? Seriously, how? How does she get herself in the water to swim over 14,000 yards a day when her body hurts? Here's how. A gold medal. She could endure the present suffering 
that came with training for the Olympics because she stayed focused on the future glory of winning a gold medal for her country. The thought of future glory made present suffering bearable. I've got good news for you. The future glory that awaits you, if you're a child of God, is far better and not even comparable to the future glory of winning an Olympic gold medal, as good as that is. No, Paul says, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That means they're self-controlled. He's talking about the Olympic type games in his day. But he says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, children of God, an incorruptible. Meaning a gold medal will fade and eventually burn up when Jesus comes back. It's corruptible. But the crown of life that you get for following Jesus is incorruptible. The feeling of succeeding as an Olympic swimmer has to be incredibly satisfying. But you know what? That feeling fades because they got to go back and do it four, four years later. But the feeling of hearing your Savior say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, brings an eternal satisfaction that never fades. Hang on the future to get through the present. Why? Because glory is coming. Would you say it out loud with me? Glory is coming. One more time. Glory is coming. Are you discouraged today? Overwhelmed by your present suffering on this earth. I would invite you to get your eyes on heaven today because it's real. And it's real for all of those that know Jesus personally. Stand to your feet.